All right. Well, good evening, Erev Tol. Welcome to Echoes of Eden. Uh, this the second week of Echoes of Eden as we uh, began last week in portion Bereshit, which Bereshit is a Hebrew word that means in the beginning. Uh, the portions, generally speaking, each week are named after the first major word in that week's portion. Uh, so if it begins with an and or something like that, there's no portion named and. Uh, so it's kind of like the first major significant word. But it also kind of in many ways, which we'll explore as we go, sets the tone, the energy uh, for that week's portion. And so the name itself of that portion is uh, quite significant. So last week we began with Bereshit in the beginning as the Hebrew calendar began uh, in synagogues around the world, uh, began studying the Torah from the beginning. And so we are joining in with them. Uh, and uh, before we get started officially uh, this evening, just a few announcements. One, uh, Jordan has made Echoes of Eden available as a podcast. So if you prefer podcasts, you can go to like Apple and look under Echoes of Eden Emmanuel. Uh, it'll pop up if you type in that. Uh, the Sunday morning class, Mosaic, uh, which looks at uh, the Gospels, is also available as a podcast. That's Mosaic, uh, Emmanuel Lutheran. It'll pop up for that. Uh, as well as the, the ways we've already been offering uh, material, we'll continue to do that. So on the website, you can still get the handouts. Uh, the MP3 audio downloads are the link to the YouTube video. So we just added an additional way for those who find podcasts more convenient. Uh, if you signed up for the email list last week and you got an email or two from me, you're good to go, obviously. If you signed up last week and you didn't get an email from me, please check your junk or spam folder because nothing came back to me as like, not right or misspelled, so everything went out to somebody. So if you signed up and you didn't get one, you should have, so check your various uh, places for that. And if you would like to sign up for that, uh, please do so as you exit. There's a, a list there uh, as you're going out on the left. Uh, and just sign your name and your email. Uh, on Fridays, my goal would be to let you know what's coming up on Monday, maybe a little teaser, if you will, about what that class is, as well as additional announcements like, hey, we got a podcast version of this now, or, um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to promote the fact that in August of 2023, uh, I'll be leading a, a tour of Israel and Athens, and just want to make you aware of that. Uh, so that's, um, I'll just kind of send that information. No, no forwarding of cat videos or anything like that, or jokes or anything like that. It'll only relate to the class, or if maybe class isn't going to happen or something like that, or um, it, that would be one of the avenues. I would send that information out in. All right, so that's kind of uh, the announcement portion. Uh, let's begin with the blessing uh, before the study of the Torah. Again, I find this meaningful for us as followers of Jesus, uh, as Christians, as those connected to the New Testament, uh, even to do this prayer in Hebrew because our Messiah prayed this prayer. Without a doubt, prayed it in this language, prayed it, and it sounded like this. Uh, and so that helps us connect to him, like to, to hear his language and to even, over time, learn his language. And even when we study on our own, to, to say the words he would have said when he was studying uh, is just another way we can connect to him. So let us pray. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam, Asher Kiddishanu Bumisvetav Vesivanu Leesok Bidivrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the Universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments, 
has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of the Torah. Amen. So this week is portion Noach, which in Hebrew, Noach means Noah. So very close uh, English and Hebrew there. We don't have a, a hard H sound uh, in English, so Noach just becomes Noah. Uh, there's some significance in his name. A uh, couple of those we'll talk about tonight as they connect even to our Messiah. Uh, but also, uh, a way uh, the, the first century Galilean mindset looks at Scripture um, the portion covers Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, and goes through the end of chapter 11. But Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, the very last verse concluding Bereshit, but also kind of warming you up for Noah, um, says that Noah found favor. A lot of English translations put it that way. He found favor in the eyes of God. And it's actually a wordplay, because uh, in Hebrew it's Noah ken. Well, if you spell Noah backwards in Hebrew, it spells ken, which is favor or grace. Uh, and so his name, not only, as we're going to learn, means rest and even more so comfort, but it's deeply connected with the idea of favor, the favor of God and the grace of God. And so most of this portion uh, is about Noah, and but towards the ending of the portion, it'll start warming you up for next week's portion, Lech Lecha, where we uh, really get into Abram. Uh, and so this week's portion will kind of end talking about Abram. But uh, as we get started, I just want to summarize the portion. Uh, I know uh, many of you read it before, but it's always good to kind of remind ourselves what's going on in these chapters, essentially Genesis 6 through 11. It uh, begins with God instructing Noah, who, according to the text, is seemingly the only righteous man in the world, right? But we're going to talk about how the Torah actually qualifies that. But he's this righteous man, this man that kind of stands above and beyond everybody else in a world that is really consumed with violence and corruption, and God instructs him to build uh, a large wooden ark, uh, which in Hebrew is teva, which we're going to learn more about teva a little bit later on. Uh, teva only occurs in two places in the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. It's here in this portion, and then it's in the book of Exodus in that, port, in that book's first portion. Noah, I mean Moses, is placed in not a basket, but he's placed in a teva. He's placed in an ark. Uh, and so that already, the fact that it's only used twice and both times, they're actually thematically connected, lets us know that teva means a little bit more than just a boat or a wooden boat. Uh, and so we'll get to that, but he's instructed to build this uh, ark, uh, because a great deluge, a great flood, says God is going to come and it's going to purge, it's going to cleanse, it's going to do what water does, right? It's going to wash away the filth, it's going to wash away the dirt. And this is why uh, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter will even see in the portion of Noah a connection to baptism. Uh, it washes away the filth. Um, but this ark is going to float upon the water. It's going to shelter Noah and his family. And 
you know, a little bit of myth-busting. Often people think that animals went on board the ark two by two, right? But you read the portion and you know better, right? Some were two by two, others were sevens. They went in groups of seven, right? So not all animals went in two by two. Uh, some went in sevens. Uh, that two, the ones that went in in pairs were the unclean animals. And the ones that went in as sevens were the clean animals, which you need to know, therefore, the Torah is already letting you know that even before Sinai, even before the giving of the commandments, even before the giving of the written commandments, God's people already had an understanding of clean and unclean. And even more so, these clean animals were the ones that were used for sacrifice. And so they already had an understanding of sacrifice. In fact, Noah will make a sacrifice. Uh, and so they learned that from someone. They learned that from somewhere, right? They learned that, obviously, from God himself coming through Adam and the oral tradition. Uh, so some animals go in in pairs. Some go in in whatever the fancy Latin word is for sevens, all right, is how they went in. Then rain falls for 40 days and 40 nights, as the text says, and the waters churn for another 150 days before calming and beginning to recede. Uh, finally, the ark rests on Mount Ararat, and Noah dispatches a raven uh, and then a series of doves. I was so tempted this evening to spend almost the whole evening on raven, the raven, and the doves. And then I made the executive decision this morning not to talk about it at all. All right, so you have to come back next year for the raven and the dove. Other than uh, the raven is clearly a bird of prey. Uh, a bird of, of death, a scavenger, and so forth. So it has very much a, a dark side element to it. The dove, especially the number of times the dove is sent out, and then it returns, and then it's sent out, and then it returns with the torn olive leaf, then it's sent out and doesn't return, actually all tie into uh, the manifestation of our Messiah in this world, and even as we are awaiting the dove to come back and so forth. So next year, I'll go into all of that for you, uh, but uh, he sends out the raven and the doves, and then when the, dry, the ground is dried completely, after 365 days, from the onset, God commands Noah to exit the ark and kind of uh, try to make paradise restored, right? To try to, to bring back uh, the Garden of Eden. Uh, so Noah builds an offer, altar, offers sacrifices to God. Again, our minds should be going, well, how does he know about sacrifices? And how does he know which sacrifices to make? Just tuck that away. We'll answer those questions in due time. Uh, over our years in the Torah. Uh, then God swears never again to destroy uh, humanity because of their deeds through a flood. He didn't say through any means. He just ruled out the means of a flood. And rainbow is correct, but he literally says the bow will be the sign. That's important too because we are so influenced by children's Bibles, and children's Bibles, in my opinion, it shocks me that we include the story of Noah in there. Like, it's edited, right? It doesn't have all the stories in the Bible, but it includes Noah, which is one of the most violent and horrific stories you could have in the Bible. Uh, but yet, we've somehow sanitized it. Noah's this fat, jolly guy with a white beard and this beautiful rainbow in the back. But in reality, like, everybody dies, 
And the rainbow, uh, as we're going to find out, isn't this lovely thing. It's actually, it's a bow. It's a sign of judgment, right? Uh, Even for us today, when we see the rainbow, yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's amazing how it's formed with the water particles and the light and so forth. But it's still a sign from heaven that God, if it didn't make his covenant, would have destroyed the earth today, right? And it's to make you pause and to bring you to repentance, right? And uh, the the children's Bibles never convey that aspect uh, of the story. So God makes this covenant, seals it with the bow, the rainbow in the sky. Uh, Then God commands Noah regarding the sacredness of life, uh, you know, about murder being a capital offense, uh, humanity is now permitted to eat the meat of animals, uh, but forbidden to eat the flesh or blood taken from a living animal. Noah then plants a vineyard and becomes drunk on its produce. Two of Noah's sons, Shem and Japheth, are blessed for covering their father's nakedness and his shame. Uh, the third son, Ham, is punished for taking advantage of their father and his vulnerability. Uh, Then the descendants of Noah remain a single people with a single language and a single culture for ten generations. Then they defy their creator, as it says, by building uh, a tower, the Tower of Babel, trying to um, create their own technology, their own um, connection to God, almost build their replacement to God. And before we think that's an impossibility, The text is very clear. God puts a stop to it because they are ever so close to succeeding, right? He even says that if I don't stop it now, I don't, you know, that's not going to go well. And so to do this, he scatters the languages, which then whenever you see something like this in the scriptures, always look for, and this is in your Hebraic toolbox, look for the tikkun, uh, the repair. And so when you go into the New Testament and you look in Acts chapter 2 and the Pentecost event, right? It is is the beginning of the repair of the Tower of Babel, right? Because the languages uh, at that time are becoming one again. Everybody is hearing and communicating well. uh, And they are having a unity of heart and mind and so forth, signifying the beginning of the messianic era, the beginning of paradise on earth being restored once again. And then the portion concludes with the chronology of the ten generations from Noah to Abram. He's not Abraham yet. And then Abram's journey from his birthplace to the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is the promised land. It is what we would know in our day and age as the land of Israel. Israel is the promised land called Canaan at this point in time. Um, So that's the summary. That's what's kind of going on. Each week when you read the portion, uh, I would encourage you maybe to even start reading it um, or at least read it again after we meet so that you have what uh, is called kavana. You have a mindset to approach it, uh, a way to pray about it before you read it. We want to live in the times. All right, so when God inspired Moses to write these words, when God inspired the Torah to fall from heaven and make its way into ink on paper for you and I, 
it was designed to be read according to the calendar. And so this week, you're supposed to read portion Noah. Doesn't mean it's the only thing you're supposed to read. I'm not saying that, but you're supposed to read Noah this week. If you want to be in step with God and what God is doing and what God's about, Noah is where it's at. If Jesus were on earth today, he would be reading this portion this week. This is what he would be teaching his disciples on this week. Uh, And so when we realize that, we can begin to ask ourselves questions before we read or pray about these things. And one of those uh, spiritual connections to keep in mind as you read through Noah this week, um, uh, define the spiritual energy that's there, this, um, that's being given to us if we just will have the knowledge and the consciousness for it. That's where the power lies. Is um, It says, as I told you, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Creator. Right? Noah found Ken. This week, we also receive the strength to find Ken, to find favor. In people. That's one of the things that this is how we always talk about the Word of God as living. It's active, it's powerful, it does things. This is one of the ways it does that. This is one of the ways it becomes alive for you, right? And so when we read this, we should be thinking about who in my life doesn't have favor? Who do I not cast favor on? Who am I casting disfavor upon, right? And then you can begin to think about that and pray about it and find even just the the one point, the one point that is redeemable, the one point that is good, and and celebrate that and find what is favorable uh, in those who are around you and those who uh, you encounter this week. Look at them the way our Creator looks at us. And we can gain the ability to see the good in other people rather than the bad by reading Noah this week and being aware of that. It's words and how the Spirit will use those words. That's one of the ways it helps us live in the times. And so maybe there is someone in your life, someone even in your family, uh, that you don't have favor with or aren't finding favor with or that don't find favor with you. Uh, this is a week to pray about that and to, to look for God to actually act and do something about this week. So that's definitely one of the, the spiritual technologies available. As we go on this evening, I'll point out uh, a few more for you as well. So that's our introduction. That's our getting started. That's our kind of getting our, our vessels ready to uh, encounter some of the text. As I said, it's essentially Genesis 6 through 11. We aren't going to cover all of that. That's why you'll be back next year for Noah, right? We got like to the end of time every year to talk something new in Noah. Um, But this evening, I wanted to kind of see or explore how we can see aspects of our Messiah in the pages of Genesis, all right? And not just by these specific examples, but by learning the methodology of how these specific examples are used. Because all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is all about our Messiah. Every bit of it, right? Uh, After his resurrection on his way on the Emmaus Road, he encounters two of his disciples that, for divine purposes, are, are not able to recognize their master, their rabbi, their teacher. And he uses that opportunity to open up the scriptures to them, open up the Torah and show them how everything 
testified about him. And that's actually not a uniquely Christian approach to the Scriptures. Even uh, the Orthodox rabbis firmly believe every word of their Scripture, every word of what we would call the Old Testament, at its core is testifying about the Messiah. All right? And so I wanted just to kind of show a couple of examples in this text from Noah of how that's going on. So the first one, we look at the opening verse from Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. This is my translation. It's pretty close to what you're going to have in your Bible, but just in case you're wondering, like, why is it somewhat different than mine? It's because it's the FIV, the Foster International Version. All right, so let's uh, read this together. Ready? This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. All right, so that kind of kicks it off. Now, what I would call shadows of the Messiah, Uh, They hover over the entire text of the Bible, and most definitely it includes the Torah. So what are some of the ways in which we can see a a shadow of our Messiah in Noah? Well, quickly, uh, then we'll dive in deeper into one of them. Just as Messiah stands alone as the single righteous man, blameless among people, so too Noah is described as there in the text, Uh, a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Just as the Messiah warned his generation of an imminent day of wrath and judgment, so too Noah, when he begins constructing the ark, is very much in a a visual way uh, teaching the world the same kind of message. And just as Messiah is called the Savior of the world, so too Noah saves the world through his obedience. And just as Messiah made a means for deliverance for which people might be saved, so too Noah builds the ark. But even the name Noah, Noah in Hebrew, even that relates to Messiah. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 16 There is a title for Messiah that is derived there. Uh, That word in Hebrew is Menachem. Now, if you look at those two words, they're on your handout, but they're also up on the, the, the screen for you. The top one is Noah's name in Hebrew, Noah. And then the bottom one, Menachem. Do you see the middle two letters in Menachem? They're identical, right? So you see how Noah's name is in the name Menachem. It's kind of hard to hear that in English. It's as clear as day in Hebrew, I promise, right? It's very clear in Hebrew that Menachem is just the, this is Tom and Thomas. This is Bob and Robert, right? It's very clear these two are coming from the same place, uh, that Noah is the root of Menachem. Um, And Historically, uh, even before the time of Jesus' uh, ministry on earth, Lamentations 1.16 was understood when it speaks about this comforter, this Menachem, that it was speaking and prophesying about the Messiah. Uh, when speaking of giving the Holy Spirit, though, in John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples that the Father will send them another comforter. If you were reading those words from John in Hebrew, 
it literally would say, and the Father will send you another Noah, another Menachem, another Noah, right? See, now you're beginning, oh, okay, right? Because Noah's name in Hebrew means comfort or comforter, and Menachem is the same thing. And so he will send another Menachem, another Noah, indicating that up until then, Jesus was fulfilling this role of Menachem. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is referred to as our advocate with the Father, is what most translations give you for that. But the Greek for advocate, guess what the Hebrew of that word is? Menachem, Noah, right? Jesus is our comforter our way of connecting to comfort with the Father. So this is already, again, teaching us, even when we read this portion, chapter 6 through 11 of Genesis in the 21st century, in the year 2022, we should be thinking about ways in which we need comforter. And we should be claiming that promise from John that you're going to send us this Noah. You're, you're going to, and then be praying about and looking for ways and looking for insight and expecting to see and receive comfort. Uh, That's a major, major theme throughout the text. The sages of the Talmud, for instance, they also agreed that Menachem is one of the names of Messiah. Um, This is from Tractate Sanhedrin 98b. Uh, It says, Others say that the Messiah's name is Menachem, the son of Hezekiah, for it is written in Lamentations 1, verse 16, Far from me is a comforter, a Menachem, another Noah. One who will restore my soul. At the root of this Hebrew word, Menachem, again, is Noach, comforter. This is because in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, when we first will encounter Noah back in Bereshit, his parents named him Noah prophetically. It says in Genesis 5, 29, his father called his name Noah, saying, this one shall bring us comfort, or this one shall comfort us. Uh, And so in many ways, each generation of God's people always looked and still looks for the Redeemer. Just like we still look for the Redeemer, we know who He is, we look for His return, but we still look for the Redeemer. And Noah naming their child this is their hopes, even their expectations that their son would be this Redeemer. And on a small scale, in a foreshadowing type way, Noah was a redeemer, right? And he, he did fulfill those offices of bringing comfort. Not in the greatest extent, obviously, but he did fulfill his name. Because from your Hebraic toolbox, names are never just names. Names in the Bible describe a person's essence, their core, their destiny, their reason for being. Um, and so that's why when a name change occurs, it's a big deal because it's changing who that individual is. Uh, and it's changing what their fate is and what their destiny is and what their purpose in this world is. And so Noah came into this world with the idea, idea that he would be the comforter, the Menachem. In Matthew chapter 24, by the way, Jesus draws all of these things in and compares them to himself. Uh, when he speaks about his generation, he sees the connection of himself and his generation 
to Noah and Noah's generation. And so he sees himself as the greater Noah, the next Noah, right? The Menachem. Uh, and uh, so he says, beginning in verse 36 of Matthew 24, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so Jesus himself very much makes these connections with himself and with Noah, his generation and Noah's generation, Noah's purpose and his purpose. So just in kind of the name alone, we can draw some connections to the Messiah and even see how it's found in the New Testament again in John, 1 John, Matthew 24, those places the New Testament is pulling these images from this week's portion to describe who Jesus is. All right, so now I want to kind of keep going with that theme. Where can we see Messiah in the text? But as we do so, uh, I also want to do it in a way where um, we begin to think Hebraically. We begin to think like we're first century Galilean disciples studying under the great sage from Nazareth, right? And he is teaching us. These are the methods and the ways they read and understood and interpreted Scripture. And one of those is understanding the significance of a day and what that day means. I've already kind of hinted at it with living in the times. Uh, each week has its portion, and that portion fills that week with purpose and meaning and will always, always speak to your life right here and right now. And related to that is things don't just happen on a day because, well, it's got to happen someday, might as well be today. It had to happen someday, might as well be July 4th, 1776. It could have been July 1st that they'd gotten their act together, or maybe as early as April if they really would have worked harder. And it could have happened, who knows, September 12th, 1778, right? That's not a Hebraic Torah worldview at all on what a day is, all right? Nothing is coincidence. Everything is is intentional and you will begin to see this if you truly pay attention when the torah takes the time to tell you the day the month the number of years when it gives you all of that information that you can mark it on a calendar that is not just extra information that's kind of neat to know right it is letting you know something very specific about that date so when you think about passover right you think, well, that could have happened on any time. No, it really couldn't. And then when you especially learn things like that going on uh, on that date in the Bible, that is when Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah to offer him. That was on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. Or when you learn other things that were going on on that day throughout Scripture, well before the Exodus, you realize that on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, that day is a day of redemption. That day is a day of God coming down into this world and interacting on behalf of the salvation of his people. Right? That's what that day is all about, which means on on that day, that is available for us. So on 14th of Nisan, what do we need to break bondage of? What has us in chains? What do we need to snap? 
What do we need to, what is our, who is our Pharaoh? What is our Egypt? And so forth. That's the day you break it, right? That's your consciousness for that day. And so we're going to see already early on foreshadowing of specific days that actually play roles in the life of Jesus. And this is one of those occasions, okay? So where I want to go now is Genesis chapter 7, verse uh, 11. Uh, Let's read that together. Again, we'll read from the screen since it's my translation. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. All right. You see the detail there, right? That's not just cool information, right? That is the inspired and errant living, breathing Word of God telling you this day, this day that both it started and the day everything opened up. That's huge vocabulary in there. You see it at least twice, right? That whole idea of, of opening up. That it's on this specific day, which means this specific day is bursting. Bursting with a specific type of energy. And guess what? You already know it, and you already celebrate it. And now you're going to know the deeper spiritual reason why you celebrate it. And why you already hold it near and dear, right? This is the whole idea that in the West, in our culture, we remember the 4th of July because of what happened on it long ago. It's just remembering. From a Hebraic point of view, you don't do that. It's not that you don't ever do that. You do that, but that's not its point. Rather, that day is not about remembering the past. It's about connecting in the present. And so what that would mean, which is also Fascinating that July 4th, 1776, on the Hebrew calendar is the 17th day of the month of Tammuz, which is a very loaded day of energy. Uh, so there's a really nice connection there as well. But the, the, the Hebraic mind, the first century Galilean mind would say, no, it couldn't have happened on any other day. The flood and all this opening up couldn't have happened on any other day. It happened on this day for a specific reason. Now let's find out why it's still so special to us and how we can discover that. So the Torah tells us the flood began abruptly on the 17th day of the second month. And that's also when it ended and everything opened up. The skies opened up. It's new life. All right? Remember that the biblical calendar, the Hebrew calendar, the calendar that's in the book of Leviticus that God gave to his people is a lunar calendar with an asterisk. It's a lunar calendar that's balanced with the solar, but it's primarily a lunar calendar. On the biblical calendar, we ordinarily reckon the springtime month of Nisan, which for us is late March, early April, as the first month. Exodus chapter 12 is where this comes from. God tells Moses and the children of Israel to reckon the month of their exodus from Egypt as their first month. Exodus 12 verse 2. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. And ever since then, God's people have counted the month of Nisan as the first month. But they do so in a unique way. 
They count it as the beginning of the liturgical year. It is the first month in their liturgical calendar, their worship calendar, the beginning of the cycle of worship events and celebrations and recognitions. This can be confusing because the biblical calendar year actually starts in the seventh month, the month of Tishrei, which roughly corresponds to our September and October, uh, which is what we are finishing now. This is when in the book of Kings and Chronicles, the kings would take their office. And so the seventh month is also called the first month because it's the beginning of the civil year. Now, you may think that sounds crazy, but if you come from a church background that is remotely liturgical, it's not so crazy. When does the church year begin? Not on January 1st. It begins in the season of Advent. So we have a liturgical, a ceremonial year that begins in Advent, which is four Sundays before Christmas Day. But clearly we have a civil new year, right? January 1st. Or we can even take it out of the completely religious realm. January 1st, our civil year. But many organizations, including Emmanuel Lutheran Church and School, operate on a fiscal year, which for us begins July 1st. And so we also, at Emmanuel, have two first of the year. July 1st is when my health care deductible starts over again, and it's where uh, all those kinds of uh, your vacation days, you know, renew and all of that. It's July 1st, not January 1st. The Hebrew calendar has two first months. A liturgical, ceremonial, religious one, and a civil one. Okay? Um, and so the beginning, so which one is being spoken of in Genesis? Part of the answer is pretty easy to deduce because what hasn't happened yet? The Exodus. And so God hasn't told Moses and the children of Israel to count Nisan as the first of the year or the beginning of the months. But here's also a very important tool for you. This is what's known as the Targums, T-A-R-G-U-M, Targum. The Targums are Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament that existed before the time of Jesus. And why they're in Aramaic is because uh, as, as people became more global, They quickly, as they moved away from the center of their faith, even if they maintained their faith, quickly picked up the language of the land they were living in. And many Jews no longer spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Close cousin language, but different nonetheless. So in the synagogue, they would still always read the Torah in Hebrew, no matter if the only person who understood it was the dude reading it. Then someone would come up and not translate it, but summarize it with interpretation in Aramaic so that those who didn't learn to read and write Hebrew, those who weren't literate, they would hear it in their own language. And that got codified. That got written down. So by the time of Jesus and the disciples, they would learn what the Bible meant from the Targums. 
They would study the Torah and their first commentary, if you will. The, very, the world's very first study Bible was the Targum. And as I said, it added commentary. It didn't just translate word for word. It added in things. But these are the commentaries that John the Apostle learned, that Paul the Apostle learned, that Jesus as a little 12-year-old boy sitting with the sages in Jerusalem, that he heard and understood and also taught the people from. When we read the Targum for Genesis chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, listen to what it says. And it was at the time of seven days after the conclusion of the morning of Methuselah that the Lord beheld and lo, the sons of men had not turned. And the waters of the deluge came down from heaven upon earth. And in the 600th year of the life of Noah in the second month, which is the month of Marcheshvan, for hitherto the months had been numbered from Tishrei, which was from the beginning of the year until the completion of the world, and the seventeenth day of that month and that day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up. So the Targum tells us when all of this should be counting from. Okay? So taking the Targum as our guide, which again is what Jesus and the first century disciples did, this raises an important implication regarding the dates in our Noah portion. For example, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, it says, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. According to the Targum's reckoning, the seventh month from Tishrei would be the month of Nisan, the month of the Passover. And in fact, the 17th day of the month of Nisan falls during the week of unleavened bread, or what would become unleavened bread. And if you look into it even further, the 17th day of the month of Nisan is when Jesus rose from the dead. According to John's reckoning, Jesus died on the day of Passover offerings, the day, the day they were slaughtered, not just the day, but that's why John tells us the time of day in the ninth hour. That's the Minka offering. That's when the lambs were sacrificed. So when Passover lambs were being sacrificed, Jesus dies. The 14th day of Nisan. Three days later, he rose on the 17th day of Nisan. When Noah and his passengers in the ark felt their drifting craft come to rest upon the mountains of Ararat, when all of the world opened up again to something new and fresh. Their hope was renewed. The resting of the ark was the first glimmer of the salvation of humanity. Just as the resurrection on the anniversary of the day the ark rested betokens upon us the hope of salvation for all of humanity. And so already in the Torah, you're setting a significance for the 17th day of Nisan. These aren't the only two, right? Torah loves to tell you days. You just have to do your homework and figure it out, but it gives you days and dates all of the time. And so it's already letting us know that that day, the 17th day of the month of Nisan, is a day with resurrection power. And yet, don't you know that? Now you know why in your heart and soul you know that so well. It isn't just because we are remembering. It is because we are connecting to it because we have the consciousness of that day. 
You know, my kids always teasing me because I always tell them, no matter what number comes up, no matter what day of the year it is, I'm like, that's holy. That's a holy number. That's a holy day. And they're like, Dad, you say every number is holy. You say every day is holy. And I'm like, you're right. But they're holy for different reasons. And they possess different connections, different portals, different things to plug into. So don't just know what's holy. Know why it's holy. And then when you know why it's holy, then you know how to direct your prayer. You know how to direct your thoughts. You know how to direct your your conversations. You know how to direct your focus. It orders the day. 17th of Nisan. Resurrection of Messiah. Also the day the world opened back up again and the flood was over. So days are never just days. Anytime the Torah spends time to give you that kind of information, you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to connect to something in Jesus' life and the Gospels. I can guarantee it, actually. It's never, it's never not done it with me yet. All right? And even when I think I finally found it, I spend enough time and I'm like, oh, there it is, right? Always connects. That's why it's being given to you early on. It's preparing you. This is what, this is the road to Emmaus. What did Jesus, how did he teach them on the road to Emmaus that all scripture was about him? With stuff like this. With stuff like this. That's what he did. All right, another energy that I think is important for us as we read Noah um, is Sometimes we can be overachievers. Sometimes we can be perfectionists. Sometimes we can expect too much from ourselves or too much from others, and that sets us up for disappointment and and anger and sorrow and sadness and a whole bunch of other stuff because we expect oftentimes the impossible from people. And really what Noah, the portion, is teaching us is that we really shouldn't expect the impossible from anyone. We should only expect the possible because that's all God expects of us. That's all he really expected of Noah. He only expected the possible from Noah. The impossible part he takes care of. He only expected Noah to do the possible. So Noah, as I said, it would seem a whole lot of people know the basics of the story. God chose Noah to continue the human race because of his righteousness, because of his ability to stand shoulders above the world around him. But that's not really how the story goes. Even though the Torah clearly states Noah was a righteous man, the problem is what follows that. Let's pay close attention to the text. Genesis 6-9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless. Now what do I have? Underlined, what's it say? In his age. There's a qualifier for his righteousness. There's a qualifier for his blamelessness. In his age. Nearly every rabbinic commentator throughout the centuries, as far back as we can go, and including predating the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, have taught that this passage must be understood as teaching that Noah wasn't really that great. He was just the best that God could find at the time. The Hebrew phrase is tamim hayah bedoratav. Noah was righteous 
in his own generation. No other time. It's very specific in the Hebrew. Only in that qualifier. So as an example, the rabbis would often compare Noah to Abraham. When Abraham learned that God intended to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, what does Abraham do? He immediately begins arguing for God. He shows great chutzpah, and he debates God, and he tries to reason with God, and he argues with God, and he doesn't take God's first answer or God's second answer. What if I find 50? What if I find 40? What if I find 30? What if I find 20, right? He keeps going. He is battling for the souls of people. But when Noah learned that God intended to wipe out the entire human population on earth, when you really read the story and don't follow what you've heard, what does Noah do? He just gets busy building the ark for himself and his family. Read the text, not the myth that we have. What does Noah do? Noah looks out for more than just himself, but it doesn't go beyond his family. And you can actually follow this in the scriptures as God's leaders develop. You go from Noah, who did what he was commanded. Make no mistake about it. God said, build an ark. What did Noah do? He built an ark. He did what he was asked. He did nothing wrong. But then you have Abraham, who not only does what he's asked to do or told to do, as we'll learn next week, go, get out of here, head on. I'm not going to tell you where, just get to moving, and he gets to moving. But Abraham goes beyond that, has a tent that's open on all sides, wanting strangers to come so that he can teach and, and, and include them and graft them in, and he, he barters for people's salvation. But then there's Moses. Moses is the first one who not only does what Noah did and what Abraham did in leadership qualities, but Moses goes to the point where he says finally to God, take my life if you'll save theirs. Right? Great foreshadowing of Messiah. Take me, even though I don't deserve it and they do, take me so that they may live, right? And so you see this development of God's leaders throughout Scripture. Noah's at the beginning of that. Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan, he uh, once said this phrase that I find when he was talking about portion Noah, <coughs> Noah. He said, you can achieve the impossible only by attempting the possible. Those good words right there, those deep words, okay? Um, especially when you take it into account of what's going on in this week's portion. His assertion, you can achieve the po- impossible only by attempting the possible, very much connects to the deeper level of the story of Noah. Noah wasn't a miracle worker. Noah was not some superhuman able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, He was simply a man who was, quite frankly, according to the Torah's own description, good enough. He was good enough in a society filled with people who were really just worse. In fact, he wasn't the kind of person you would expect to achieve the impossible at all. Just someone you could rely on to do the possible. In the Torah portion, Noah, what was possible was doing what God had commanded. Build an ark, inhabit it with animals so that they along with Noah's family could be saved from the impending flood. Doing the possible was putting one foot in front of the other 
nailing one board on top of another, getting the job done one step at a time. That's Noah. And it's good. It's good, right, and salutary. And after all, according to the Torah, Noah simply doing what was necessary, doing what was possible for him, was enough to save the entire world. So one of the points for us this week, one of the connection points for us to to think about, to journal about, to pray about, to talk with others about, is that the road to the impossible is found only through the possible. So what's possible for you? What's possible for you this week? What's possible for you in your workload? What's possible for you to be able to give of yourself to this person? What's possible for you? That's all you got to do. And that's the road to the impossible. Great breakthroughs in human drama often materialize because at crucial historical moments, the individuals who do what they can to make a difference, who do the possible, end up transforming the world. Like Noah, their acts of doing the possible end up achieving the impossible, including saving the world for future generations. Staying afloat and the ark for us today. So this is, again, more of these connecting points where I really want to make the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, really relevant to you, right? That you're not just reading something that was meaningful to people 3,000 years ago, or you're just reading historical stories that just help us know a little bit more about the context for our faith, but that it's the living, breathing, active Word of God that still changes our lives and transforms us today. And I think we can see that even here in the ark when we realize at the deepest level, I'm not denying there was not a wooden boat floating in the world somewhere. I'm not denying that at all. It's on camera. I'm not denying that at all. But what I am telling you is that's actually not the big point. That's actually not the big deal. Because in the end, that's so long ago. That's great. Thank you very much for letting me be alive today. But then it's just history. It's more than history. It's connection for today. So I want you to know what the ark not was. I want you to know what the ark really is right here, right now. Because the amazing thing about the portion of Noah is if you read it very, very, very carefully, very carefully, it still describes you and I as being in the flood, scratching at the boat. It's masterful how it does that. Read it very carefully because it's got layers. It's the story you know and love, and you can show me those portions. I'll amen it. But it also is teaching us, and you already know by human experience, we're drowning. We're drowning in a world of chaos and confusion and violence. Another school shooting today. We are still in the flood. And we desperately need the ark. But we don't need no wooden boat floating up here. Again, I'm not denying there wasn't a wooden boat. Chill on that. We don't need the wooden boat. And we don't need, you know, we don't need it. But we do need the ark. So what is the ark then? 
what it was really then. Even if it was a wooden boat, it was more than that. Wooden boat was just the, the physical structure, just like this wafer or this cup or that water in that font. We say things like, that's not, that's not just water, it's water, but, but it's not just a wafer, it's also, it's not just wine, it's blood, what, right? Ark is like a sacrament, it's the physical representation of a much deeper spiritual reality, and that deeper spiritual reality is still available to us today. So what is it? The Hebrew word for ark is this word, teva. And it's good, right, and salutary to translate it as ark. If you're in my Hebrew 101 class and you translate that as ark, I give you an A-plus for the day. Maybe an A. I'll save the A-plus for the person who says, excuse me, doesn't that also mean word? Why, yes, it does, Johnny. You get the A-plus. Well, Dr. Chad, which is it? Is it ark or is it word? Your first century Hebraic thinkers with the toolbox now. It's never this or that. It's always both and and more. It is word. So let's go with that for a little bit. Instead of thinking of it merely as an ark, a boat, because clearly Moses was not put on a gigantic boat in the Nile River, what was he placed in? Ooh, what if it's... What if teva is a much deeper word? Because it is. What if it's a much deeper word in concept? The same way the physical teva ark provided Noah and his family safety from those fierce waters of the flood, so the spiritual teva, the word, the word of God, the word made flesh, dare we even say, saves us from drowning in a flood of material concerns that so occupy our hearts and minds. In order to be saved from the flood, the Torah tells us in this portion of Noah that you got to get in the Teva, that you got to be in the ark. If we want to be safe from the flood all around us, I dare you to try to argue there is not a flood around us as even sirens are going by this building as we speak. If we want to be safe from that, we also have to enter into the Teva, the Ark, the Word. One might be tempted to argue that perhaps connecting to God's Word is something, again, that only the righteous can do, right? Noah's the righteous one. Those who are spiritually deficient maybe cannot escape the raging floods of worry, doubt, and shame. To dispel that misconception, the Torah therefore emphasizes that the refuge provided by the ark, the teva, is not only for the super-righteous, if you will, but that's why it makes that qualifier of Noah. That if Noah had lived in the generation of Abraham, it would not have remembered him. He was just an ordinary Joe next to Abraham or Moses. This means all of us can immerse ourselves energetically into the Word, into the Ark, the Word of prayer, the Word made flesh, and there find safety from the flood around us. Isaiah 43, verse 2, uh, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I share it nearly every time I do shut-ins to the point as I'm now hitting 
certain shut-ins for the fifth, sixth time since I began my pastorate. They're, they're kind of like, you're going to read Isaiah 43 again, aren't you? Um, but they always enjoy it. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's flood language, folks. And when you go through the rivers, it will not overwhelm you because you're in the ark, the teva. But let's go even deeper into the Torah to see how this concept that the ark is more than just a big boat existed thousands of years ago. The ark is spiritual technology for the here and now. It's a point of connection for you because the ark, even by its words, is connected to the tabernacle, the mishkan. And so, from a biblical language point of view, the ark was a floating tabernacle. And what is the tabernacle? Again, it isn't about its physical structure. And when we get into Exodus, we'll really expound on all this. But it's not about its physical structure. It's about the fact that that is where heaven and earth kiss. That is where God comes and dwells in, with, and among his people. That's what the ark is. The Torah says the ark survived the flood, but how could that be possible if it's just if it were thinking just a boat? Even if the ark had been a large and secure ocean liner, the unsinkable Titanic, shall we say, it would not have survived a flood of that magnitude. To explain this, this is where you're going to learn uh, from your Hebraic toolbox what's called gematria, G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A. Very important from first century Hebraic point of view, Galilean point of view. Not so big in the West, very big in this worldview. There are 153 verses in the story of Noah, one of the longest continuous stories in the Bible. Further, in Hebrew, letters aren't just letters, they're numbers. So A is 1, B is 2, up to 10. Then it goes by tens, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, up to 100. Then it goes by hundreds. So if I wanted to say 11 in Hebrew, I would say Yud Aleph, which is the letter Yud, which has a value of 10, and Aleph, which has a value of 1. So they're letters and they're numbers. In your toolbox, you'll see that a first century Galilean understands that words that have similar or, or that have same numerical values are related. And they're connected. They're synonyms through their numbering. 153. That is the same number as the name Bezalel. Who is Bezalel? Bezalel was the one who constructed the holy tabernacle in the wilderness. Again, a connection to the tabernacle. With this in mind, was the tabernacle holy because God said to build a place where he could dwell on earth? No, he even tells David that. Who are you to build me a house? I don't need no house. You're the one that needs a house. In fact, you want to build me a house? You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. That's what God tells David. Tabernacle isn't holy because God said build a place where he'd dwell. God doesn't need to dwell in a specific place. He fills the universe. So we should not understand the tabernacle or temple as just physical structures where God dwells. Rather, the tabernacle, the temple, the ark, even the word made flesh are all physical manifestations that provide a way for humanity 
to connect to the non-physical light of our Creator. Noah's Ark was really spiritual technology, technology still available today. It was a material object designed to provide a means of connection to our God, despite the fact that the entire world was eliminated, and this way the Ark brought safety to all of those who were deeply rooted in it. And so when we find ourselves drowning in the flood, Isaiah's image of the rivers swelling up above us, how will we know it will not overwhelm us? If we are in the teva, in the word, and all that implication, the word of God, the words of our prayer, the words of our teachers, the word of made flesh in the form of Messiah, and on and on. That's the ark. That's what the ark was then, and that's what the ark is now. And you're going to have to wait till next year to find out about the rainbow, because we're over time. Oh, my goodness. I apologize for that. All right, so next week we're going to be looking at Lake Laka. Love Lake Laka. Even the name Lake Laka is awesome. In fact, we may spend most of the time on those two words because it's amazing. But I may call it an audible at the last minute. But Lake Laka, um, what God is calling Abram to is far more than just a physical journey, which therefore, Lake Laka, that will be your call next week. God will be saying Lake Laka to you next week. What does that mean? It's important you know what that means, so we will spend some time on that. Um, that covers Genesis 12 through 17. Uh, yes, I am aware of what next Monday is, but I will still be here. Um, and uh, that's okay if you have other plans. There, It's recorded. Uh, it's posted, and it's a podcast now, all right? Um, but I will be here um, teaching the Teva, all right? So let's uh, close with the blessing. Baruch atah Adonai noten hatarah. Blessed are you, Lord, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Go in peace. See you next week online or in person.